You found it, the Japan What Podcast, blowing hot out of the back end of Tokyo. My name is Matt Bigelow, your host. I'm Mike Rogers, the co-host of the show with Matt Bigelow. Good morning, dude. Afternoon, even whatever. Evening, whatever it be, wherever you may be, the cacophony of the madness of the world means we're global. Although, you know what they say in Greenwich meantime? You're what? fat. Why? Because it's mean. Huh? It's not nice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. So here we go, man. Um, this is, uh, we got a lot to do today. Um, I do have, uh, something that I used to work on when I first started this, uh, little thing we call the podcast it was high or not high. High or not high. High or not high. I was oh. walking past the, um. Russian embassy the other day. Yeah. And I think that the Russian language, the writing system, I don't think it's real. I think it's all bullshit. The high or not high. They have backwards R's. It looks like somebody found a broken computer in 1958 and brought it back to Russia where they just claimed it was their own thing. And before that, everybody was too drunk to even buy paper. So the Russian language is a spoken language, but its written form is a total fraud. Always has been, always will. There's no such thing as a backwards R being pronounced like a forwards X or whatever they do over there. The language is even called Cyrillic. It sounds like some drunken Russian heard the word acrylic and just started repeating it. High or not high? High. Very high. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been to Russia before. Have you? I've never been. I want to go to St. Oh. Petersburg. Putin always says this to the women in the room. Oh, you must. You must go to St. Petersburg. Yeah. But well, he doesn't sound French. Russian, like Russia is a very, uh, um, I'm sure Americans are going to be shocked to hear this. It's a very nice place. I was extremely surprised. There was no... Like, if you land at the airport at Los Angeles, LAX or something, there's a racial, racial tension in the air immediately when you land. Yes. But I never felt anything like that in Russia. And I went to Moscow and I went to Sochi. But people tell me Sochi isn't really Russia. Yeah, but, I think you've um, talked about Sochi yeah, before. I talked about this before, but it was like the 1950s or the 1960s in the United States is what it reminded me of. Ah, MAGA. Yeah, modern well, no, day Russia you know. is like MAGA. No, I know what you mean. Um, there's there's not a whole bunch of um, just weird values that suddenly appear everywhere all the time every time you want to say something. Um, I, I want to go. Uh, Russia has what is called a barbell society, where there's a yeah, what's that? A big top and a big bottom, but very little oh. in between. Ah, so you got these like super educated, uh, wonderful people. Who who are able to you know wax eloquently about the 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 benefits of having a language that doesn't exist, um, and then you have everybody else who is just super drunk living somewhere and and it's dirty. That's the two well, levels of Russia. Well, it society. wasn't so dirty. It was really clean, actually. I yeah, thought. yeah, but you were you were you were treated to the Potemkin village, Mike. 
<laughs> no, no, no. I mean, in, even even in Moscow, even in Moscow, there there was very little trash on the streets. Like not like going to London or L.A. or Paris. There's a lot of trash in the streets in those countries. There really is. Um, those places are pretty progressive these days. Last year, I went to um, Budapest, Praha, and Vienna, and those places as well, super clean, very safe, yeah. and uh, people are just chill. I've yeah. noticed that it, uh, people who live in these sort of mega dynasties with huge identities, people from South London or people from London or, or Paris... They're always caught up in this identity of being from there. But once you get out into like the, the countryside or Central Europe, people are unbelievably chill. It's, it's, they're my people, Mike. They're my people. Yeah, um, I'm, I had a friend come to Japan, and he said, he takes me to the Shibuya intersection, and he points across the intersection. He goes, look, look, will you just look? I'm like, what am I looking at? And he says, there's no trash cans. Like, this was some kind of a real revelation to him. Yeah. There's no trash cans here, but there's no trash in the streets. And I said to him, dude, you're supposed to take your trash home. You're supposed to be a man <laughs> of character. Where's your character? And he, was like, he was like, no, no, we're supposed to throw the trash away and someone's supposed to pick it up. And then you're going to pay taxes for, for yeah, this guy? Exactly. And this whole system? Do you know who does that? Why would you want to do that? Ugh. Um, I did a blog entry the other day, uh, and it's kind of about how, how our, if you have a very strong country with a strong media from that country, basically these days it can hunt you with you, with the smartphone. Um, case in point would be like a BBC app, a Netflix app on your phone, um, versus a, uh, some sort of radio show from Romania. They're not going to be able to track Romanians down. So I was kind of obsessed with like um, Americans' usage of Google and Facebook and Twitter and Netflix while they live in another country like Japan. Uh, I've noticed that mm-hmm. especially. And um, Chinese people as well. They travel abroad and they use WeChat or Alipay and the, the apps on your phone kind of create a media bubble around you that yeah. prevent you from actually interacting with the 3D space while you are in the 3D space. And even with the Chinese case of WeChat, it's a payment system as well. A billion people use it. Uh, and it makes it so that the if you're Chinese and you're out of country and you're using the WeChat app, you're kind of still using Chinese currency in another country it's like the equivalent mm-hmm. of an American credit card system, right? Um, mm-hmm. And also the government can track what you're buying and what you're saying. So if you go to a country and you start buying like anti-mal literature with your WeChat, your family might be punished. It's very strange. Well, yeah? Yeah, no, I, I've, I've, I've heard that. And um, I really think the key to, to this is everyone has a smartphone now, right? Yeah, it's the fastest penetration rate of any technology ever. So this is my iPhone 10. I got an iPhone 10. It's pretty good. And it's not bad. I won't lie to you. Well, as soon as this is dead or and it's starting to do weird things, I'm going to get rid of it and get what's called a snap clip phone or flip phone. 
Oh, yes. You're going to OTG off the grid. Yeah, because I don't, you know, I, when I ride the train, I see everyone, everyone sitting there looking at their smartphone and getting information yeah. about stuff. And I, I used to read two or three books a week. It's a lot. But, well, because of this... You don't. You I just sort of start. Stop. It, it's they. They have really stupid words for. It. They're like, yes, it's called data snacking. Where you go and you look down and you scroll and you data snack. You, we have enough data time snack. for data oh. snacking these days. It just means wasting time, essentially. Um, but I was I was um, thinking about the top apps in Japan because, as you say, everybody is always getting lost in into the darkness of an app somehow, and while. A lot of my, uh, you know, uh, English-speaking uh, compatriots from universities, uh, they will often talk about Netflix or um, some sort of American politics or something like that. Chinese yeah. people are talking about their payment systems and QR codes because I used to teach quite a few Chinese people. Uh, they're funny, by the way. They're the good, the top sense of humor in China. It's it's mm-hmm. it's really good. Um, but I was wondering, I spent a lot of time when I was walking around past the embassies, uh, looking at Chinese, sorry, (laughs) there's the mistake, Japanese on their phones and what apps they were using. And I download, I I didn't, I downloaded some of the top apps, but it's kind of hard to understand if, if these are used by children or not. But what I noticed is that most of the women are using chats and the men are using Mm -hmm. chats as well. But a lot of the men are also engaged in maps, games, and mm. um, uh, information. Like they're they're looking at things about the place that they're going to, so that they can know about it in advance. But I don't mm. really see a huge amount of social media, payments, politics, news. No. Maybe news, but it's kind of strange. So yeah, the Japanese basically have one of the highest. Um, usage rates of smartphones in the world, but the it's not as if you can you can transfer Netflix to Japanese Netflix or WeChat to Line or something like that. Basically, oh. if, I talked to my wife about this, and she said if it can create uh, a shared community with an interest that's also anonymous, that's going mm. to do well in Japan. And everybody's so secure with their stuff in Japan. Everybody has those black screens where you look at it from the side and you can't see what it is but if you look at it head on you can so mm. the it's a very different it's it's weird how the smartphone reflects the mentality of the culture overall using it is that strange oh uh, well yeah and actually this is a little bit a little bit different but on the same subject this morning when i got up i got a email from google google pay or play or I don't know what it is. And it said, we're going to renew your su- subscription for a year at 3000. I don't know, maybe 30 some dollars or something like that. That probably Google and, play. Yeah. Well, I don't do Google play. I've never done Google play. I'm not interested in playing games on my smartphone. And I, I just unsubscribed and I thought, and I wrote a note to them. I never signed up for this stupid system. I don't play games. Yeah. Online subscriptions that are very reasonable with companies like Google and Netflix or whatever, that's their main source of income. You get you get 60 million people signed up to a $30 a month program. 
you're going to kill it, man. And Yeah, uh, but I mean, I think people should be careful of, of that because it had I done what I usually do, it's like, what's this? And they just deleted it. They would have had me signed up automatically. Yeah. Well, I, I, during the um, Obon season and all this lockdown horse shit, I downloaded a game and I used my credit card to do some in-app purchases on it. And uh, I found out yesterday that uh, somebody hacked my account and used my credit card to purchase about $1,000 worth of stuff. I looked at my cool. credit what card. What are you going to do when you get this? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. They're giving me presents with my own credit. Uh, no, the, this is, uh, again, it's, it's bizarre. But anyways, I wanted to talk about something we like to call UFOs. If you happen to be gazing at the sky in Tokyo on Friday night, you may be among many others who witnessed an event that's best described as out of this world. Footage from security cameras and drive recorders taken just after 10.30 p.m. show what appears to be a falling <laughs> ball of light. People have also posted videos on social media. Last month, the fireball was seen streaking across wide areas of Japan. Two fragments of a meteor were later found near Tokyo. I uh, heard that last one where the, a big boom sounded out over the, over the city, and then they did yeah. find some. So... Um, UFOs, man. What do you think? Well, do you think that the it, aliens are coming to Japan? You think well, we're being visited? The, about this story, about this story that you're talking about right now, it, they say that um, this mysterious balloon-like white object, yeah, uh, was taken on by a photo of somebody in Sendai, and it looks like a weather balloon to me. But that's not your question. Do I believe in UFOs? Yeah, let's get into it. Um, nah, no. See, and the reason why I mean, right. okay, I'll give you a couple, two reasons. All right. One reason is, you know, you go out in your garden, and you sit there at your garden. Yes. And there's like ants running around. Yeah, oh yeah, little ants. Yeah, yeah, the and they're doing whatever they're doing and yep. surviving Scuttling their communities around. and stuff like yeah. that. Do you like to step on them and crush them and try to destroy them? No, of course not. As a reasonable <laughs> human, I, I respect the world of the insect. So I think that if there were, if there were UFOs or aliens or whatever, we would be like the ants to them. That's they, what they, Michio Kaku like, says. He <laughs> says that the the ant hill on the side of the highway doesn't know that there's a highway beside it. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, that's something that Michio Kaku has finally said that I agree with. Yes, normally he's uh, uh, batshit <laughs> crazy and one of those weird 1960s futurists who has long yeah, white yeah, hair. Yeah. He's like Asian looking. He's like, oh, yes, the future. <laughs> he's, but, he's before internet kind of people. Well, well, what do you think, Matt? Oh, of course. I mean, okay, this is the thing. If we're going to divide infinity into possibility of yes and no, I'm going to go with yes, because space is infinite, and um, that's where I make my logical thing. And the other one is, let's just maybe, uh, maybe I've seen some some flying objects in the sky that I haven't been able to um, uh, identify as easily as these simple streaking white things going uh, across the sky, you know? 
What about a giant yeah. triangle with mist flying around it being chased by helicopters? What about those people? I don't know any about any giant triangles being chased by helicopters. Yeah, that's crazy. So well, let's just say that maybe um, maybe the, uh, the, the possibilities around this question are, are a little bit wider than uh, weather balloons. Um, well, oh, let me let me just add something then. You know, I, I like Mark Twain said about ghosts. Okay, good. He was, <laughs> he, this is a true quote from, from Mark Twain. He said, I do not believe in ghosts, but I sure the hell am afraid of them. Yes, that's, yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. Well, no, he, well, he used language that everybody used. Um, his, his whole thing is, is very true. And one thing I heard about, um, uh, the possibility of a ghost, not not a demon ghost, a conscious ghost, but an unconscious ghost, is that some sort of, um, like when we get a scar on our skin, it's a wound in time. And ghosts may be a reflection of something that terrible that happened at that time, and it's on a loop that plays it because there's some sort of trauma that was done. But that's not scientific. It, it's 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 mindless horseshit, but it's something that you that I think in my head, and then when I say it, I realize it's it's batshit lunacy. Oh well, okay. Name this movie. X Files. Name the movie. No, 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 no. Name the movie. Here, here it goes. Um, let's. There's a lattice of consciousness all around us. Yes. So let's say you're thinking about shrimp or a plate of shrimp. That's and what I was. Somebody thinking just about. says. Somebody just sudden sudden says shrimp or plate of shrimp. That's what you just and, did. Yeah, and why why even look for the answer to that? It's just part of the lattice of consciousness. Uh. Let me give you another example. Take all these people around the world. There's so many millions of people. Where did these people come from? Uh, the the grocery store. So these people came from the past. Oh you yes, see? yes. So and. Every year in South America, thousands of people disappear. Where do they, they go? I don't know. The grocery store. They, into the past. Oh. So UFOs are actually time machines. That's that's a that's a possibility. I've also heard because <laughs> Carl Jung he wrote a book about UFOs, um, and he alleged that these were. Uh, projections of, of group consciousness into the sky where enough people oh. started believing something where they were able to project it and, and, and see it, but it's not actually there. What a crazy oh. dude. Wow. So maybe he wrote the script to that movie. That was Repo Man. Re oh, yes. 19. Repo Man. <laughs> a great yes. movie about UFOs. <laughs> sort of <laughs> yeah isn't that where they have like just cans with basic labels on them like meat yeah and meat food beer beer yeah yeah auto goes food. to the refrigerator and gets a can of that says food and his mom says put it on a plate son and heat it up it'll taste better <laughs> <laughs> i think there's a scene in there that's very brief where the repo men are looking at a happy family coming out of a house and getting into a car and one of them just looks at the other and says i fucking hate normal people 
Yeah. Ordinary fucking people. Ordinary I hate fucking them. people. I hate them. And right. the other guy, uh, Otto says, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've noticed around the world, uh, Australia, UK, uh, especially Australia, I've noticed the Australian police have been beating up their citizens for not wearing masks. Um, no. And I've noticed that everybody everywhere is kind of getting a little bit loopy with this mask stuff. I wear it on the subway out of respect, but I honestly think that in a clean environment such as Japan, uh, wearing a mask in 35 degrees Celsius is not the best. But I just want to say, like, I think the I like having a weak government. And that's what I think the Japanese government kind of is. They're not able to do a whole lot. They're able to posture and people will respond. Um, but uh, I want to just go through a little bit of the numbers nationwide. These are the COVID mm. breakdowns. August 20th, okay. 1, 000, about 1,000 tested positive, negative 400 active cases. 1,000 people discharged, six critically ill, 11 deaths. Um 22,000 people were tested, uh, but on um, the 14th of, of August, 55,000 people were tested, which led to the minus 400 active cases because that kind of overrides the system a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Of the 17,075 people who tested positive in their 20s, one has died. And out of the 2,825 people who tested positive in their 80s, uh, 626 people have died. And in Tokyo on August 20th, 339 people tested positive, 797 discharged, four new critically ill, six deaths on the 19th, one on the 20th. Uh, since February 8th, the death toll is 348 in, tech, in Tokyo, representing 0.000029% of the population. Boom. Wow. That's so, not, uh, that doesn't seem like much of a crisis, especially like, um, I think the 1968 pandemic, which I think was, uh, I don't remember, some kind of flu. And there were more than a million dead worldwide. Yeah, it's and crazy. About 100, and it's, it's, 100,000 in the States. It's weird because, um, a lot of the times I'll see this 339 people have tested positive and that's why we need to have a complete lockdown and make a new law and, and get in a B C D E F G and revise the medical systems and put plastic everywhere and do social distance. Like it's, it's very strange. It's very like yeah. the, we have, we have this, this amount of cases and that's why we need to totally redesign society. <laughs> it's the most insane thing I've ever seen in my life. Very few people stick to just a few numbers to give the overall scenario a little bit more context. It's like, because we have 339 cases, we need to redesign society. It's very strange. Well, I, you know, I think, of, of course, what you mentioned about the Japanese government being weak, um, what it is actually is in this country, people really respect the law. And the con constitution of the country does not allow the government to make mandates for like wearing masks or something like that. Whereas in the States or in Australia, the actually the law of the land does not allow the government to make such mandates, but the government does it anyway. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Good point. They're not allowed, but they do it anyway. It's like that whole federal yeah. state local thing. Like, yeah. Interesting. So, 
you know, like in Japan, um, the government recommends that people wear masks. So if I go to the grocery store and I, I usually do maybe once a day, you know, I got to get some walk, but I go to the grocery store and sometimes I forget a mask. And when I walk into the grocery store, I, first thing I notice is, oh, oh, everyone's wearing a mask and I'm not. And I kind of get these weird looks yeah. from people. Yeah. Don't worry, folks. Don't worry, folks. I'm just here to buy a couple of cans of beer and some shochu, and I'll be out of your way here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget that pack of cigarettes there, too, lady. <laughs> yes. By the way, I really appreciate everybody wearing masks, especially at the convenience store and grocery store, because uh, they touch everything I'm bringing home. Oh, well, of course, <laughs> you wash your hands first when you walk in the door, right? That's the first thing you do. Sure. All right. But at my house, that at my house, that's been like a rule for 25 years. Yeah, it's weird. It's, wife, it's like yeah. this whole pandemic thing is happening. What can we do? Oh, remember just to wash your hands. It's like my mom <laughs> is talking to me, you know. Oh, close the door to the refrigerator. You know, like it's this super banal uh, advice. Like I'm stupid as well. Hey, stupid Can I mention man. One, one, <laughs> one more thing about Australia? I got to give you a little um, anecdotal uh, story. All right. right let's talk start. about the wallabies. Yeah, well, I love when the Australian accents, Corona thing. I don't know if he's from Hong Kong or China, but he's a medical assistant, and he kept saying like, "It's going to get really bad here. It's going to get really bad here. The government must enforce mandate for wearing masks." And I, I just wrote wrote a little note to him. I, I, I don't think the government can do that. That's not within the realm of what they can pass as law. Yeah. And um, we demand he, tyranny now. <laughs> he started arguing with me, you know, of course and he, he threw the medical card. I'm, I'm a medical assistant. And, and so I, I was just like, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the law. So you guys either are for freedom or you're not for freedom. And I don't really care what you do because I, I'm not, I'm, I live in Japan <laughs> but he was saying, no, everyone is, every country is going this way and it's going to be mandatory to wear masks. And I said, well, I don't think so. I think you sound like somebody who just repeats what they hear on the television. <laughs> <laughs> so, so wait or a minute. somebody so Australia, walking what? around with their fucking smartphone and just, uh, you know, looking at Twitter and then getting the, the algorithmicalized transmission from the smartphone and then looking up and start repeating what they've just seen and heard. Yeah. Well, then th this is the problem. I think this is the problem with today's society is people don't think things through like, for example, and I'm very much against seatbelt seatbelt laws. Okay. I'm going to get it off on a tangent here. Is that okay, Mark? Uh, Matt? Yes. <laughs> yes. Peter. Okay. okay. Whatever. So, um, <laughs> I'm against seatbelt laws. Okay. Because, because I don't know why I'm paying tax money for the police to set up roadblocks to stop to see if people are having their, their seatbelt on, which that seatbelt laws and giving people tickets for that are, are actually backdoor taxes. But anyways, that's a different subject. I love that porno. If a guy, backdoor taxes. I, rem I, I remember many years ago, 25, 30 years ago, driving through Sakura Shinmachi and I was driving behind this guy and a cop stopped him. And um, 
I had to go to the police box anyway. So they took the guy into the police box and the old guy was screaming. And this is, this is how ridiculous this is when you think about it. The guy said, you put on your seatbelt after you saw me. The policeman said that. After you saw me, you put your seatbelt on. And the guy said, no, no, no. I was putting on my seatbelt when I saw you. Oh. That's a, I mean, and I kind of thought, I sat there listening to these two argue back and forth and kind of thought, this is so ridiculous. Why don't you just let the guy go and tell him, don't do that again? You know? Here's a guy, and this is this guy was pretty old. He looked like he was 80 years old. He'd lived through the Tokyo firebombing and did everything else, probably fought in the war. And here's this 30-year-old cop giving this guy a hard time for not wearing a seatbelt. Mm. So my, my point is, and if you extrapolate from that, you can go to, um, and I, this is going to say, I'm going to say something that people are going to get really upset about. I don't believe drunk driving should be a crime. What? What about the children? Drunk driving. <laughs> no, a crime is like somebody gets injured. So if a guy is driving drunk, let's say I get in my car and I start my car and I drive down the street, park the car. I'm, I'm totally drunk, but I hit no one. I didn't smash my car into anything. Where's the crime? Where's the victim? Well, it's, it's pre-crime. It's, yeah, it's well, that's not a crime, though. That's like thinking about robbing a bank. Yes, now, who you should go to jail. Who hasn't thought about robbing a bank? Come on, Matt, tell me. You've never thought about robbing a bank in your life, even playfully thinking. Yeah, sure. How about, uh, how about this? Uh, um, uh, stealing Bitcoin on a thumb drive is more reasonable these days than robbing a bank because banks don't have money. They just print money digitally. Yeah, that's right. So um, anyway, against all of these, like, um, speeding tickets. Uh, it's a tax um, grab. Those, yeah. It's a tax grab. And people need to think think about that and think that through. What is the ramifications of this? So if you think. Before you ram your car belt, drunkenly into a bunch of children, think about the ramifications. <laughs> but yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. So, um. If you believe that, you know, not wearing a seatbelt should be a crime, then you are also pro-drug war. Because what is the rationale for the drug war? It's like, oh, well, someone might get high and they might do something. Well, right? well it, it, the, the drug war in Japan is just um, keeping as many of the drugs out of the country. Right? We, yeah. we could say that the... Like the, the, you know, we all know that uh, the CIA sold a bunch of drugs to sell missiles to Iran or whatever it was, but I don't see the Japanese security forces doing that. I, I see them as super top level people keeping everything out from like the uh, hierarchical top so that it doesn't get to the lowly bottom. But, 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 but the Japan self-defense forces supported the United States in Afghanistan and the United States in Afghanistan is growing. Um, what is it? Poppies. Yeah, poppies. Yes, poppies. they're growing them like crazy. They grow the poppies like crazy. They provide the security there, and then China goes in and extracts all of the rare earth metals. 
Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, <clears throat> we got to go to the interview. I'm just going to put this here and um, say that uh, support the podcast by going to the website, MatthewPMBigelow.com, and uh, give us a like and give us a share. I'm shadow banned on Facebook. I don't know why. I, I blame the Marxists of the, the music community. That's where I seem to have laid my finger to blame. And make sure that you uh, we got new art every week. And there we go. I'm not good at promotion. Mike, how about you? No, Matt is an excellent podcaster. This podcast is getting more and more popular and hitting in the top 10 of uh, uh, iTunes. So please support um, What Japan Podcast. I'm Mike Rogers. I'm Matt Bigelow. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to go to this interview uh, with the um, Gaijin uh, salaryman guy. So we'll do that and we will come back out after the break. So joining us now is Mike Howard. Michael Howard from the Amazon Japan bestselling author of The Salaryman. TheSalaryManBook.com is where you can find it. This is the best-selling memoir that details Howard's romp through four Japanese companies in his near decade as an immigrant Tokyo salaryman. Find out what it's like to be mentored by the wise office sake master and yellow-carded by the Human Resources Department for having an unrefreshing desk and discover the trap awaiting Americans on the Japanese driver's license test course. This fun manga-illustrated journey through Tokyo middle-class life is a street-level study of Japanese culture that world travelers, Japan tourists, and lovers of office humor will guzzle down faster than a salaryman does his first beer after work. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for that intro. That's, uh, I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, Mike Rogers, I believe, was yes. the one that orchestrated this interview. Uh, Mike, take it away. No, I don't want you thinking that I, all I do is read uh, comic books, okay? <laughs> That's basically all, all I read on the internet, you know? And uh, I, I was going through and I found this. I've uh, always loved Marmaduke. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> Marmaduke. God, Heath I haven't Cliff. Heath, Heath Cliff. Cliff and Marmaduke. Garfield. You know, never his bottomless lasagna of his dreams. Oh, man. Yeah, it's about as far as I got into comics, too. Yeah. So, um, you, so Mike, uh, Michael, of, of the, we got two mics here, and uh, it's kind of weird, but that's the way it's going to be. So, Mr. Howard, Mr. Howard, uh, you, you went into this manga game. Uh, what, what prompted you? Uh, so, the book has a lot of manga style illustrations, um, 70 or so. And I worked with a professional Japanese manga artist for those. Um, and, I always felt like we were barely scratching the surface of what we could do. Um, I wanted to do a lot, lot more illustrations with her. And I, there were so many scenes that I thought would be would make for a really good manga. And not being a manga artist, I didn't or a storyboard writer even, I wasn't sure how to do it, but she and I developed such a rapport. It was just sort of a natural evolution to go from writing a book with illustrations to just a full off manga from that so it's just part of an evolution i guess in working with the manga artist can, okay can i interrupt i got a, i got a few technical questions here so mike so yeah. you've, you've you've worked at four corporations now yeah it's almost 
embarrassing to say I was, well, a, life, you know, I was a lifetime employee. Yeah, I was a lifetime employee. <laughs> that's that's bad in Japan, you know, switching companies so many times. I've actually had Japanese people tell me that. Like, oh, this is not good. Your resume is not good. You, you've had 10 companies in 10 months. Oh, you no. know, things happen. <laughs> it's like it's like talking to a girl at a bar, and it's like she's been married four times. You run for the hills. Oh. <laughs> I was a little bit worried about that stigma. So I, I do feel lucky that I actually escaped that stigma. Yeah, you're right. Oh, so well, yeah. Well, how did you escape the stigma? I exactly. I have to give each company credit for having an open mind on my story on why the previous job didn't work out. Oh, <laughs> the the first one was actually, I was not a, a seishine. My first job at a, a Japanese corporation in Japan, I was mm-hmm. a keokshine, a contract worker. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Lehman shock happened at the end of the oh, second year. Oh, I remember year. that, yeah. And they let go of all of their contract workers, including me. Oh. And so I was affected by that. So that one I chalk up, that one's not in my loss column. Uh, okay. But the mm. uh, the following three jobs were Seishine um, mm. permanent employee jobs, and they were just just crazy fits for me that didn't work out for different mm. reasons. Um, but I ended what, up at an American company now. Yeah, you're at an American company now. Yeah, I'm so, American American company. You're gonna tell us what company that is. You're gonna advertise your company. I won't say it. Um, if what's you your what's your corporate me, though, phone number? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what, You'll find me. Uh, what were these? Um, we're gonna have to continue this conversation in a second here. But what 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 type of Japanese corporations were you working at? And when you say Seishain, uh, what were the details of that? So I was working in the electronics manufacturing industry. So uh, semiconductor, video broadcasting semiconductor um, mm. was the first company. Second company was electronic components. Mm. Very boring sounding company that if I told if I talked for 30 more seconds, you guys would all fall asleep. But it's all the stuff that goes inside electronics. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they're one of the largest companies that supplies all the all the stuff that goes in the guts of your like iPhone and your computer. One of those kinds of companies. Wow. And then why why did they on. why did I, they need you? So I think I fit into like a particular general manager or vice president's little internationalization um, ideas I've been there. that he was having at the time. And I had a specific background in audio technology back then. And so my first two companies actually were doing stuff in audio, which was new for them. And so I just happened to fit this, this internationalization and this audio specialization for these two guys. And it was really just sort of their cult of personality that got me hired because I was so far outside the box as a foreign Seishine locally hired. It was uh-huh. it was the ultimate round, what do you call it? Round peg fitting in a square or the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it was just very, very one-off kind of hire. A triangular so square. Okay, what can, can you tell us about the very first time, I bet you remember it, the very first time that, like in your background photo there, that when you were in, came to Japan, you didn't know what was going on here, and then you were invited to one of these company parties, and you just got sloshed. Mm-hmm. What, what was that? What was that about? And what? How? What did you think about that? I, it's I depict I think one of these scenes in my manga um, because it was from one of my my first nomikais as a welcome party. Mm. 
and I learned the I, I learned the theory of the nomikai, you know, and, and its stages of nijikai, sanjikai, and so. I noticed how people recede into the night as you go into each stage. They just sort of like fall off the edges. Certain people go <laughs> off to whatever they want to do. And it, it's interesting how it goes to the next stage. And um, Like penguins noticed, on an ice flow. Yeah, there's no confrontation. And it's very, all the rules and the formalities just sort of like dissipates the instant the, the first beer hits. And I did notice how like... Uh, drinking was the first priority, smoking the second priority, and, and f- actual food is like tertiary <laughs> to any of these uh, these parties. And I'm like, Jesus, where the hell is the food? I'm dying here. It's like I'm five <laughs> drinks in, and I'm just hammered. And uh, they, they deal with their liquor a lot better than I could on an empty stomach. So I, I learned that, empty stomach boozing. Yeah. Um, I just learned how amazing the bars get. Like you go into these these specialty haunts where like this guy's got this Led Zeppelin shrine, yeah, and with with, with like with like bootleg copies of John Bonham, you know, drumming. And I'm just like, oh my god, this is Tokyo's got everything. Like they're into everything, and they do it better than us <laughs> as Americans. I was just like, whoa. Have, have you been to any? Level. Have you been to any Elvis Presley bars? Where the no, master dress is like, okay, you got to go to those because they're dying out. They're disappearing. So, Mr. Howard, would you say that the overall day-to-day of the Seishain is efficient or inefficient and why? <laughs> it's, it has to be inefficient from the start <laughs> because... Because you're hungover, one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're... you're, you're well, they handle their hangovers, and that gets into the whole um, over-the-counter uh, ginky drink uh, ability to burn off hangover met- medicine that happens here. They're way yeah. ahead of us uh, in the Japanese pharmaceutical industry, <laughs> us <laughs> Americans. But no, it's so categorically inefficient because I think one of the things that's against being efficient is the ambiguity of job roles. What's your job again? Oh, no, I thought that was my job. Well, that's yours. And there's like 10 people doing a project when there should be like one or two. There's this like uh, fuzziness of job titles and job mm. responsibilities that happens just as part of the culture of Seishine mm. life. Mm. So it's impossible to know who's responsible for what. So you're like, oh my God, who's responsible for this, this mess? And there's like 10 honkos, you know, at the bottom of the, of the approval form. So it's impossible to like pin blame on one person. Mm. So there's this like incredible passing of the book and, and just um, hard to find, you know, how, where to get answers and how to get things done in that environment. So, so I think uh, that's why following following on that. Why is yeah. Japan so efficient? Why does everything work and why do all the trains run on time? Mr. Howard. Yes. So <laughs> now you're getting into nitty gritty. Uh, and this is where like the theories, I, these are theories, not an expert. But my theories on consumer life here is that it's there to balance the inefficiency of corporate life. Yes, consumer theories. One can't, it, yeah, my, my personal economic theory of, of Tokyo especially is that the inefficiency and frustration of carrying on in those roles that are so frustrating and rules of those companies are countered by this incredible jewel of retail and bullet trains that run perfectly and bars with, you know, 
perfectly uh, designed Led Zeppelin shrines or Elvis shrines and <laughs> immaculate service and food everywhere. I think that it all balances it out. So I think that's why this is my, this is just my, uh, my, my immigrant theory. But uh, mm -hmm. from my perspective, I think it is a beautiful part of it, actually. It sort of balances out. One cannot, it's like a symbiosis of, a, of, of the country. It's just sort of that buttresses the inefficiency of the, of the company environment, I think. Two magnetic okay. polar opposites swinging around some indefined chain of, of self-identifying DNA properties that we can't really put our finger on. Yeah. I'm only okay. half. It's a half-baked theory. No, no, I find that theory very interesting. So, so, um, do you, do you wish to stay in Japan or do you wish to go back to the United States in the future? And the reason why I'm asking you these questions is I think it's really interesting how after being here for a while, I, well, you've been here a while, mm -hmm. people stay here for a long time and their thinking changes. So I like your theory. Yeah, I like your theory. I'm not sure that's right, but I have no theory. <laughs> I have no theory about why Japan is so efficient and the companies are so inefficient. Yeah, I, I, I believe that companies what and I've only worked at a company um, for about two years, and that was a long time ago. And I would see these employees coming in and they would come in hungover every day hung over every day and they would they would do work and then they'd go to lunch and they'd come back from lunch and then what they did after lunch was spend all their day um fixing all the mistakes they had made in the morning and then they would go out drinking again yeah so that just used to really blow my mind it's like you guys oh, come on mike let's go drinking it's like uh no you know every, every day I, I'm not into it. I just can't. I can't. Yeah. Handle it. Work as excuse for nocturnal consumption is like, it's not a new theory. Um, mm -hmm. It's not a theory exclusive to Japan, but it is an art form here. That's take, that's ratcheted to another level mm -hmm. that you don't see in other parts of the world as much. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you want, wish to return to the States or do you like it here? Actually, I, this is, this is news, but I am transferring um, next month. After 13 years in Japan, I am moving back to the Oh, US. back to Chicago? Yes. Oh. Yes. I wow. swung it. And uh, it is actually in a um, publishing-related role um, oh. with my current company. So it's it's really a marriage of two yeah, great things, two great things. Uh, I can work in publishing, um, stay with my current company, too, and then be in Chicago, which is, as I mentioned, yeah, it's where I'm from. So it's... Pretty amazing, yeah. And but I'll keep writing uh, and doing the manga about salaryman life. Um, of course, I'll keep keep with that. But uh, yeah, that's the news. That's amazing. Wow! Congratulations! Congratulations! Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, big news. So what? What? From what our interview right now, we're gonna close up pretty soon here. But related to your book, what have we touched on in this interview that has like included in your book, and what is not included in your book that you'd like to mention? Uh, we, I think the theories that we mentioned about the way inefficiency uh, is balanced out by this incredible consumer culture, that's very much a part of the book. Um, and I think the, nomi, the nomikai thing um, that 
Mike had asked me about my impressions in my first Nomi guy. Um, that's all in the book too. So I, I haven't strayed too far from the content of the book, but there's so many more stories about characters um, that have positive and you know negative effects on me. There, there were a lot of interesting Japanese bosses I've had, some good, some bad. So it's all over the map. I didn't want to paint a negative picture about Japan in the book. It's not, I'm not bitter at all. Um, but some amazing characters, funny and just colorful. And so the book has these guys painted very detailed, you know, uh, these kind of characters that you that you see. Uh, these 50, 60 year old lifetime salary men have lots of stories and lots of color. Uh, so it's not yeah. all, it's not all faceless guys, you know, in suits. That, that's, <laughs> That's what I do. One thing I do want the book to, to show is that there's there is lots of color behind all that plain facade. <laughs> yeah. So so um, Mike, then um, did you do you feel that being a foreigner, uh, being a foreigner working in Japan, and Japan has lots of rules, right? There's lots and lots and lots of rules. But because you're a foreigner, you don't have to follow those rules. Do you think that's an advantage? disadvantage would you recommend working in japan to other americans i would um i i don't want to discourage people from working in japan because the book uh portrays my unique situation was i worked for some of the most traditional electronics companies that you could ever work for mm -hmm. like top 10 percent of conservative so i went through some some hellish situations when you could talk about following rules and like morning lineups to you know recite company rules before you start the day kind of thing uh it sounds i terrible <laughs> it, it was masochistic at some point i was just like what am i doing here to myself but uh that's not the experience for everyone you know some people there are some modernized more modernized japanese companies that i think foreigners can comfortably more comfortably find a spot in mm. uh you learn a ton about japanese culture by working for a japanese company that's so right that's, yeah it's a good way and it's a good way to like boost your training in japanese language too mm. while getting paid so yeah i would recommend it so well then okay lastly can you sell us our book sell us your book tell us about your book where it's on sale whatever ah. go ahead the pitch. Oh, well, it's, pitch. Uh, I just go to my website to find everything I've written. There's um, the book you've mentioned, the Salaryman memoir, and then there's the Salaryman manga, which is a spinoff from, oh. from the mm. book. Both just go to the, my website, uh, thesalarymanbook.com, has mm -hmm. everything on there, where to buy it. Um, and yeah, I mean, Japan Times has reviewed it, so it's getting a lot of good um, critical reviews, positive. Uh, so I'm really, I, I, I hope it's just one good voice um, about what life really is like here, um, both the good and the bad and down the middle uh, in a very humorous kind of consumer level, grainy kind of gritty street level uh, memoir uh, with a lot of humor behind it. Um, I don't take things too seriously. All right. Well, nice Michael Howard, in. thank you very much for being on the Japan What podcast. That's thesalarymanbook.com for all your salarymanbook.com needs. Make sure to go there and check it out. Thanks for being on the show, Mike. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a good one. Thanks, Mike. And have a, have a safe trip back home. Donate to the Japan What podcast by going to paypal.me forward slash japanwut. All right, and there we go. Make sure to pick up that book. 
<laughs> we did the interview like last week. So I'm used to oh, doing yeah. live interviews, you know, but uh, I had this thing come up where just a bunch of people contacted me. They're like, let's do an interview. And I thought, okay, let's let's compile some, throw some in the can, you know, with the champagne problem. Yeah. Headlines. Number one. Oh. Hooters closing first location in Japan as chains downsizing continues. Uh, you can downsize the chain, but you can't downsize those boobs. Uh, Hooters, I've never been there. Me neither. I've walked past and I stand in front of the windows for like 10 to 30 minutes at times, but I never go in. Yeah, well, this is another thing like what I was just saying. Think about it for a second there. It seems to me, and a lot of my friends do go there, and it seems like they really like it. But for uh, yeah. one is, I don't like I don't like fr- fried processed foods. No, me. But no, the no. other thing is, it it just reminded me of wait, wait, this is just a Denny's, and the girls are just a little scantily clad. That what's the what's the big deal? Yeah, uh, men are basic. That's the big deal. Men are incredibly <laughs> basic. You get some bacon and some girl with short shorts, and the guy's like, can't get any better than this. <laughs> That's how simple yeah, well, men are. I thought, I thought Hooters, when it first opened in Japan, would be bankrupt soon. Because in Japan, we have real prostitution and stuff like that, even though that's against the law. Yes, but um, there's no shortage of, yeah. of places with, with women with you know short skirts. I think the whole was idea I, was that it was wait, American style. Oh, so I, it was explained to me once about uh, prostitution in Japan. And this was explained to me. What was his name? I can't remember his David name. David Anyways, he was, No, no. He was a big boss at um, TV Asahi in the international section. Oh, okay. And he told me, Mike, prostitution in Japan is illegal. Yes. But. It's everywhere. You, Not so much yeah, these days, he says, but it was at one point, yes. Yeah, but he says, um, if if though two people get together, spend fifteen minutes or twenty minutes together, and during that time they fall in love, who's to say that that's prostitution? And I I I was like, what are you? T-? And then, then I thought about it for a minute. I thought, oh yeah, you're right. Who's to say? And some people that's fall in love five to ten times a day. Um, <laughs> I used to do shows a lot in Shibuya at the Ruby Room. And the Ruby Room is located right in the hotel, Love Hotel District. Oh. And when I was uh, between shows or getting ready for a show when I needed to just clear my head, I would go stand in the shadows uh, across like a little couple of narrow streets outside of a, <laughs> of a Love Hotel. And I would look at the people leaving the Love Hotel and see which ones left together and which ones separated after leaving the front door. Oh, that's an interesting survey. Well, so what percent left together? What percent split? Very, I would say 95% split. Really? <laughs> and some of the girls just turned around and went back in. Yeah. <laughs> kind of crazy. And then you go well, back so in there and you play go, some you folk know? music. If you meet, you meet, and uh, you fall in love for 15 minutes, you know. Who's not to say that that could be lead to marriage or whatever? Who's to say that it won't? Number Headline number three. Nikon or Nikon and Verily, a uh, startup name, to develop machine learning-enabled solutions for diabetes-related eye disease. 
Great. More help for people oh. getting insured for screwing their own lives up. Um, but uh, basically, the uh, because of all these smartphones, people don't need cameras anymore. So, and oh. they other other companies like Panasonic that re- relied heavily on on optics as well. They're trying to get into the AI game and medical game because there's a lot of money there. And uh, so what machine learning enabled solutions for diabetes-related eye disease means is that when you get diabetes, shit starts screwing up in your eye, and it's kind of predictable. So by looking at all of the eye data with high-precision optics, companies like Verily can come in with their solutions and work with major corporations and develop a medical solution to kind of understand what's going on with your eyes based on all the medical data surrounding the optics. It's kind of an interesting idea. Oh. Yes. And then the machine learning means that it will search through the documents, all the medical documents, so the doctor doesn't need to have 30 research papers and go to page 14 here and page 23 here and chart number three here and the update over here. It's all compiled, and it will basically like a search engine, like it'll Google the medical data and, and, and surface the most relevant um, uh, research according to what's going on in your eye. Isn't, um, though, diabetes um, like gout um, a disease that is caused by your diet? Yeah, that's what I said. Um, great. More help for people getting insured for screwing their own lives up. <laughs> Oh, okay. You said the direct way. So why don't, why don't, you know, diabetes can be totally prevented. Don't eat sweets. Don't drink too much. Don't eat fried food. Just eat healthy, eat lots of raw vegetables and stuff. Yeah. The thing is, is that there's a lot of um, sales surrounding, like there's a big industry around diabetes and that makes sense in terms of research because you can get a return on your investment. As opposed yep. to something that affects all of us naturally, um, like um, uh, ED. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, AI, number four, is also being used to detect fetal heart problems. Oh. So I guess that would be with the medical imaging when you're uh, pregnant, you know. I have a baby on the way, and it's pretty interesting to see it grow. Oh, congratulations. Womb. Thank you. It's kind of interesting. Um, but uh, you could imagine if you uh, if you could detect some of these medical issues in the womb at a very early stage, it would really help oh. the parents out in the long run. As long as it's not used to encourage abortions or something like that, like in China. Oh, <laughs> yeah, your your baby has fetal heart problems. Is it a girl? No, it's a boy. Oh, then it's no problem. <laughs> yeah, Chinese way. Did they still do that in China? I thought they stopped that. <laughs> they kind of stopped it. It is maybe a dated joke, um, but uh, s- they still do a lot of forced abortions. I remember about ten years ago uh, analyzing a report of a-, a couple that had a second baby, and then the government came over and injected the wife with a something, and then the baby aborted, and she was sterile or something like that. So. Um, basically, yes, the, the Chinese Communist Party will stop at nothing to enforce its rules. Um, telework. I've been teleworking recently. Yeah. It's not bad. It has its ups and downs. 
the uh-huh. the ups is the the break aspect inside of an office i usually work in an office when you go on uh-huh. a break you go on a little walk or you look out the window for a while some people do cigarettes or something like that with telework you can take 5 minutes every now and again and, and play guitar um but what's happening in 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 tokyo these days is the office vacancy ratio in central tokyo is going up quite a bit ever since 420 this year. It went from 1.5% vacancy rate to almost 3% vacancy rate. Well, uh, that's, that's still almost nothing. Yeah, it's still almost nothing, but it, it's, it, the, the ratio goes from 1.5 for uh, forever and then suddenly jumps to 3%. Uh, so if it continues... That's kind of what people are, are worried about. And there's a massive industry around the whole teleworking aspect. But I don't think I like it. I don't think I like teleworking very much. I think it's like a phasing out. Like uh, we, we heard a lot about non-essential workers. And then everybody starts being teleworked. And that, that kind of freaks me out. I'd rather go into the office. But you're, you've been well, teleworking exactly. for like 30 years, right? Well, I don't even know what teleworking means. Actually, it means the company gives you a computer with um, some sort of tracking program on it, like Microsoft Teams or um, Slack. Oh, it sounds sounds terrible. And uh, the manager can feel can rest assured that he can contact you or she can contact you through the PC software. Well, you can feel assured that you're still doing a job by submitting things through the um, through the telecommunications network and then getting paid for it. Mm. So it's just basically act like you're working at home. Yeah, there is that. Um, and, so but, what do you, what is it you don't like about it? Well, for example, I don't have an office when I go to oh. a when I go to a work situation a working environment they got chairs for working they got tables for working the whole layout is is based around sitting down and getting things and accomplishing those things on a surface appropriate for that thing but at my home i got a table but it i got cups on the table there's dinner on the table i have Mm -hmm. i have a small desk but it's not sounds good to me (laughs) yeah i know It, it does sound good but there's all i don't know there's something Something fishy about it. Something, something fishy about it. I'm not sure well, why. Well, for, I'm, for I'm like Randy job. from the South Park, where I where something new happens and I go, "Oh, this is horrible," and then I do it three times and I'm like, "This is great," you know. So I'm sure the next time I do teleworking, I'll be sold on it. Well, your job and my job are very similar in that we need um, out outside, you know, some experiences and impressions to have something to talk about so if we're sitting at home all the time hey did you see (laughs) did you see that new google (laughs) pop-up yeah (laughs) exactly what what can we talk about then everything is just done through a computer all of my media is on the computer and then i then i get work it's on the computer and it's all done in my house on the computer. I, I feel like the matrix is slowly encapsulating our lives and forcing us uh, through a carrot and stick uh, approach to make everything about s- shopping on the computer. And then we receive our items in the mail and the computer tells us that our items in no. the mail have arrived. 
and it, and so yeah, it's it just feels like it's pushing everybody to live in a tiny little computer capsule and do everything via the network. Well, that's why I'm saying, man, when this when your smartphone dies, get rid of it and get a flip phone. And I, I like I kind of like going places and and doing things with people in places. It's kind of a fun thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's do this. So I've been basically I'm an expert in AI and surveillance capitalism because I've worked in a telecommunications company teaching AI for five years to engineers, not not media people and not robotics people. And basically, mm-hmm. the AI I'm always talking about is software based. So, oh yeah, we can do this game. Is it or is it? Is it? Oh, is it? Surveillance capitalism. Is it or is it? Mm. And this is also related to COVID. So I'm just going to read these. Uh, so I'm going to read. There's three situations. I'm going to read it. And Mike, you tell me if it's surveillance capitalism or not. Okay, let's play the surveillance okay. capitalism. Is it or is it game? Number one. Seoul's Seongdonggu district this week rolled out 10 bus shelters powered by solar energy and equipped with ultraviolet sterilizers and thermal imaging cameras that check temperatures. Was that surveillance capitalism? They can't make any money on it if it's for homeless, is it? No, it's for uh, for bus shelters. I think the homeless hang out in bus oh. shelters in Korea, dude. <laughs> oh. I, it takes um, thermal Yeah, that's imaging. surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. I guess so. Yeah. I kind of, for me, it's it's borderline, but the thermal imaging cameras definitely kind of bing, 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 uh, surveillance capitalism. Number two, in Singapore, touch-free kiosks with thermal sensors at busy bus stops and train stations allow passengers to check their temperatures before boarding. A green light indicates they are free from fever, while an orange light shows a high temperature. Surveillance capitalism. I, I guess so, but I, I have a question here. Every d- disease comes and goes, so what this junk that they're making and putting in like at bus stops, what are they going to do with it in four or five years? I know, that's the whole thing. <laughs> uh, if the, if somebody's going to get drunk and break it, then it'll, it'll eventually go, probably. But the, uh, the whole <laughs> idea is to normalize us with the technology. No. And this is the third one. Right. Final one. In China and Delhi... Commuters must show that they are symptom-free with a mobile health app before boarding the subway, flights, and to enter some offices. That's got to be surveillance <laughs> capitalism, so too. scary. Isn't that That's brutal? crazy. You have to download an app. And if you don't download the app, they're like, okay, fine. Just go back to the past past, man. You know, welcome to uh, the future. People are accepting this. They are, are they? Oh, totally. Everybody's in on it. Otherwise, you're going to be killing children with a disease that doesn't no. kill children. Right. <laughs> okay. Or you, or your children will catch it and then pass your your grandmother on on a busy escalator, and she will get it, and then she will die. So why are you why are you perpetuating your deaths? Well, what I'm my question is why would anyone want to put up with this shit and live? Yeah, it's, it is getting brutal, and that's why I kind of think 
maybe I can see perhaps airports, you know, because we want to prevent international transmission, but bus yeah. stops? That's kind of ridiculous. That's kind of, and there's taxpayer kind of money. And then as you were talking about earlier with the with the police laws and things like that, now we're going to have to have police <laughs> monitoring the thermal right? image we, camera we can networks. Have, and we, we can have now Ken Moan, you know, where the police stops on the street and they have their, their thermo, uh, thermostat or whatever that thing's called and put it up to your head. Okay, you're going down. Oh, you think they're going to put it up your head? No, no, no. They're going to stick it up your ass. <laughs> We're going to be like like dogs sh- shamingly drooping their ears at the veterinarian's office. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> but it's crazy. And like I I've learned about this for a few years. I've seen the the technology and the software develop. I've listened to the people at the at the Council on Foreign Relations and Davos and the World Economic Forum talk about it. Uh, I've seen the scandals in the news that normalize us to it, and now it's being rolled out. And it's well. Being... So wait, wait a minute. You, you just said something that important. So you've been following this story for years. Yeah, because it's all related to AI and and panopticon surveillance and surveillance capitalism. Uh, So this COVID scare and everything is all planned. No, I'm not saying it's a pandemic, even though there there are some certain things about that. But last week I mentioned that with this COVID shit, nobody knows what's going on and there's opportunists everywhere. And that's what I think. And so I'm not saying that... The World Economic Forum engineered a, a pandemic to escape from Wuhan so that they could stick thermometers up our asses and sell it to AI companies. All I'm saying is that there are crazy opportunists everywhere. Most people laugh them off. And I'm saying, no, it's actually very serious. And we're being groomed for the a future rollout of technology that the people doing it themselves don't really understand, but they believe that they're going to be rewarded financially and see the effects of their oh. actions in the real world, which is a, a massive motivation for so many people. And once you get a few billion dollars, you start thinking like, hmm, what can I do with this? I can waste a few yeah. hundred million dollars and not even notice. And so uh, that's what I've, that's just what I've noticed. Yes. Yeah, that's why I talk right. about I, it on the podcast. But Al, isn't it isn't isn't this? Some people say the pandemic is because the economy was going to crash anyway, and then maybe with this AI, this is just a new a new um, business plan, whatever that capitalizes on this pandemic, and it's a good way to make a lot of money. It keeps us afloat. Um, Peter yep. Thiel of Thiel Capital and um, Pal- uh, what's the what's that surveillance capitalism company he made? Uh, not Paladin. I, don't know. Um, I can't remember right now. I, I know the company I researched it very well. Uh, it's it's an AI predictive program that searches out terrorists before they commit acts of terrorism. And he said, <laughs> in Europe, there's three options for their future right now. There's the mm. Greta Thunberg green option. Mm-hmm. There's the Chinese panopticon option of AI surveillance technology, and mm-hmm. there's Sharia law. Oh. And so they're going with the AI panopticon route or the green route 
because there's very little limited options. So when you say, is this a way just to keep the economy going? Maybe that's it. Maybe the the resources have been exhausted. This is some low-lying fruit that will act as a raft to take us to some next level. I don't know, but I have listened to hundreds of hours of these people talking and talking and talking, and the only way that they continue their ability to waffle on these stages is through the implementation of the things that they're talking about. And Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. Yep. Um, Imagine. Yes. You make the little bus stop thing, the little button, whatever, the box, and then you put your finger in it, and then it has to print out a tab. Or something that's saying you're no, okay, it'll send it to, to your data. phone and upload that data to the network as well, so that the people in the smart city brain center can know that there's no people with above a temperature of 37.5 degrees getting on the buses. So, to, to create this device and put one device at every bus stop, and that's how many hundreds of thousands, millions of this device they need to, to make, yeah. Yeah, there could be good money in that. We're in the wrong business. Yeah, yeah. podcasting. We need an extra strategy. Um, the <laughs> the what are those things called? The light posts are going to be the key to making this happen. That's going to be where all uh. the five G is, because you can have the light posts beam down five G speeds. So if you have a transmitter that sends it to the lamp posts and then the lamp posts beam it down, you can create a a mesh over everybody. And then when something happens inside of that mesh, it will locate it to the telephone post that has a 5G connection inside of it and then send it up to a server, which then gets downloaded into your smart city brain um, AI analytics team. Yeah, well, this doesn't sound like much fun. Well, you know what does (laughs) sound like fun? I know what sounds like fun. Stupid goddamn of the week. Stupid Gaijin, S-G-O-T-W. All right, now what's up this week? Vietnamese national arrested over stabbing of alleged colleague. Tokyo Metropolitan Police arrested a male Vietnamese national over the alleged stabbing of a colleague in Itabashi Ward last week in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. At around 8.30 p.m. on August 12th, Tran Van Hung a 28-year-old technical intern allegedly used a knife to stab a male colleague, 29, also Vietnamese. The victim suffered serious injuries, but maybe not life-threatening. Upon his arrest on suspicion of attempted murder, he admitted to the allegations, and he apparently did it on the street. Mm. So, my take is, the boys in blue don't need to look too faux into the dystopian (laughs) madness of this alleged blade-running criminal who's been keeping very few of us on the edge of our seats. <laughs> so stupid. Stupid guy. Yeah, that's so stupid. <laughs> My joke is the stupid part of this acronym. <laughs> yeah. Isn't, so I wonder, you know, like, he, he stabs his colleague on the street. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think he knows about all this surveillance technology? <laughs> yeah, no, not. <laughs> so this guy's gonna get sent to prison and then deported, <laughs> probably, or they'll give him a reward. <laughs> Congratulations! Yeah. Uh, we we actually need some crime statistics in 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 our technical intern uh, program. 
Did you know that the part of this technical intern program is to bring 500,000 um, foreign technical interns over the next few years from places like yeah, well, Vietnam to Japan? Yeah, crime will go up. Crime will go up. Mm. And it's weird how it's um, like uh, Vietnamese on Vietnamese crime. Yeah. Cambodian well, on Cambodian a, crime. They're fighting about a girl or they're fighting about drugs. Or, you know, they're at the office with the Japanese people and they're speaking Vietnamese to each other so no one understands what they're saying. Hey, I gave you money for the dope. You didn't give it to me, you know? Oh, yes. Well, maybe they're I having, mean, you just yeah. don't stab. You just don't stab somebody for without a good reason. There's a certain amount of naivety as well, perhaps, going on with... Because in, in Japan, people are well-trained and there's a high trust and yeah. but you know i've noticed this too with a lot of uh, english speakers then we'll we'll get out of here but um i've noticed that it it is true a lot of people come to japan because they couldn't something happened in their past i came yes. to, to japan just to make some money to pay off my student loans then the lehman shock happened and then the earthquake happened and then the canadian economy went down in my area and i just there was not a lot of job prospects like i'm just here to work make music have a good time, and now I'm starting a family and everything. But a lot of yeah. people they, they come here, and after a while, I realize, like, oh, you're you're a different kind of dude, you know? Yeah, it, it was that way, especially in the '80s. A lot of foreigners who came here to be English teachers got really uppity, and you know, I want to, but they couldn't get a job mowing lawns back home. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I in the past. Five or six years, I've I've worked with a lot of professional people, and the people I'm working with now, of course, are professional and not like this type of person that I'm talking about. But yeah, I've noticed that the the people that stick around in the a kaiwa or the English teaching industry for thirty years, it's it's a bit of a bit of a weird thing because I did it for six months and I was like, I gotta get out of this fucking job. Oh, yeah. It's it's crazy, but some people do it for thirty years. That's. Mm. Well, I can see doing it for 30 years if you start your own school, you run your own school, I, maybe. But yeah. working for someone else, getting a 1,000 yen an hour to teach English, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Me neither. All right. So uh, anything else for today? I think that's about it. I had some other things, but man, we'll probably get to it next week. Um, so there we go. So we're a little bit, um, oh, yes, I was going to talk about the cicada ramen. Maybe we'll do that next week. Yeah, we'll do that next week. Okay. Cicada ramen. Um, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> is it as terrible as the madness? The madness of I the modern age? That terrible. That gives people if you like... you catch a cicada, you know they'll piss on you. Oh, then don't catch cicadas, everybody. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Remember to check out MatthewPMBigelow.com and to support us on Facebook, even though they shadow ban me. Thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in today to the Japan What Podcast, episode 38. I'm your host, Matt Bigelow. I'm Mike Rogers. See you next week. Bye. Okay.